This is a CNA podcast. Welcome to Health Matters, right here on CNA 938. I'm Daniel Martin. It's a My World Ovarian Cancer Day special. If somebody is feeling bloated, having a stomach that is swollen, could those be symptoms of ovarian cancer? 8th of May, Monday, is Ovarian Cancer Day, World Ovarian Cancer Day, exploring why this can be a very challenging disease to diagnose and treat. Joining me on today's edition, Dr. John Chia is back, medical oncologist from Fair Park Hospital. Dr. Chia, welcome back. Hi. Yeah, hi, hi, Daniel. Good to be back on your show. Always good to chat with you. Where do we stand right now? I mean, since it is the World Day, after all, what is the burden, toll, weight of ovarian cancer around the world, would you say, roughly? Yeah, so, so ovarian cancer, at least in Singapore, uh, um, the lifetime uh, likelihood of getting it is about 1 in 80 women. So about 1 in 80 people, in, uh, women in Singapore, will get uh, ovarian cancer uh, in their lifetime. Uh, overall, it's about the, the fifth to the sixth most common uh, cancers uh, in women uh, in Singapore. Look at that. And yet, do you think that there's a lack of awareness about it? Do you often hear from patients or people that you speak to at events that they just that there's not very good awareness about this cancer? that there's a lack of awareness. I think in, in Singapore, women are uh, followed up by their, their OFG uh, specialists uh, quite carefully. So, um, so most of them uh, would, uh, would be, be followed up for ovarian cysts and there would be, be some uh, knowledge uh, about this. So I, I haven't found uh, a particular uh, lack of awareness. Of course, no, nobody is, um, uh, would go out of their way to, um, to, to learn and read out about ovarian cancer unless uh, it affects them personally or, or their loved ones. Uh, but overall, in Singapore, the, the literacy rate uh, for, for cancers is, is not, not too bad. Having said that, let's pick up on something you just um, alluded to, which is the types of ovarian mm. cancer. Are there various types? Yeah, so uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, ovarian cancer is not uh, one disease. It's uh, actually about five uh, major subtypes uh, that involves the ovary. So the most common would be high-grade serous uh, ovarian cancer, uh, then followed by endometrioid ovarian cancers, clear cell ovarian cancers, particularly uh, in the Asian population, mucinous ovarian cancers, and, and uh, lastly, low-grade serous, which uh, are, the, uh, are quite rare. Uh, so, so at least four uh, main uh, broad uh, subtypes of ovarian cancers. And, you know, over, over the past uh, 10 years, there's been a move uh, away from treating uh, ovarian cancer as one single disease, but to treat them uh, in their, all their little uh, nuances uh, according to the subtype. So uh, we, are, we, are, um, we are slowly uh, approaching um, what, what we call um, uh, an appreciation uh, for all the nuances in treating the subtypes of ovarian cancer. Okay, that's good to hear because I wonder whether with the range of subtypes, whether it's sometimes difficult to pinpoint. Yeah, so um, usually the diagnosis is made uh, on histopathology, either through a biopsy uh, or uh, through surgery and examination of the tissue uh, under, a light microscope, uh, under a light microscope. Uh, so if you just use uh, light microscopy, uh, sometimes it's a little bit uh, uh, difficult uh, to be entirely sure what is the subtype. Uh, frequently, uh, what um, we, we do as oncologists is uh, we request uh, for the pathologist to add uh, special chemical stainings. Uh, it's what we call immunohistocytochemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, on the basis of these chemical stainings uh, of the tumor cells, uh, we will get a much, much better idea of where uh, the subtypes and what categories of ovarian cancer this falls in. 
Got it. Okay. Do we know whether a majority fall into a certain specific subtype? Is there the, the, the larger groupings? Yeah, so the, the most common would be uh, high-grade uh, serous ovarian cancer. That's about 70% of, of the population. Then in Singapore, uh, endometrial and clear cell ovarian cancers are quite common. Uh, these two uh, subtypes are related to endometriosis. Uh, so endometriosis is quite prevalent in Singapore, uh, and that is a, a, a risk factor for developing endometrial ovarian cancer and clear cell ovarian cancer. I'll be delving into more about the... Newer forms of treatment types, actually, in the next segment, Dr. Cha. But for now, before I let you go, I'd love your advice for my listeners. How do we decrease the risk of ovarian cancer in Singapore? Yeah, uh, so that's, that's a really good question, uh, Daniel. It's, it's hard because not uh, all of the uh, risk factors are, are modifiable. Perhaps the, 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 the one modifiable risk factor is um, uh, having more children uh, before the age of 35. So the more children uh, that, that you have, uh, uh, the lower your risk of, uh, um, uh, of ovarian cancer. Uh, oral contraceptive pills uh, have interestingly been shown to uh, be able to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer by about 30%. But, you know, uh, we, we don't usually recommend people uh, to, to take oral contraceptive pills uh, for prophylaxis. Um, the, the other thing would be uh, um, to identify people who have a very strong family history of cancer. Uh, uh, if ovarian cancer or breast cancer runs in their family, then we do genetic uh, counseling and genetic uh, testing for these individuals. If they do carry uh, certain high-risk genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, PELB2, uh, for example. So some of um, um, uh, individuals, even though they're healthy and they carry these high-risk cancer genes, then the recommendation uh, would be for them uh, to remove their ovaries, uh, envelope and tubes uh, before they hit the ratio of, of 40. So complete your family, uh, quickly have all the children and take out your ovaries. And they, these are, uh, this advice uh, is, is uh, for what we call risk-reducing surgery, prophylactic surgery is, is uh, made, uh, given to people who have uh, carriers of these high, um, high ovarian cancer uh, genes, uh, things like BRCA and things like PELB2. What a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Cha, for your advice. Dr. John Cha, medical oncologist from Farrah Park Hospital. More on the treatment approach towards ovarian cancer just ahead as I continue recognising World Ovarian Cancer Day on the 8th of May. Now... Health Matters with Daniel Martin. Continuing my exploration of ovarian cancer for this World Ovarian Cancer Day special, let's explore some of the latest advancements in terms of treatment approaches for ovarian cancer on this World Ovarian Cancer Day. Dr. Si Hui Ti, back on the show, Senior Consultant in Medical Oncology out of Parkway Cancer Centre. Dr. Si, always a pleasure. Hello, how are you? How are you? Daniel, thank you very much. It's uh, good to be back on the show. Good to talk to you about yeah. such an important... I love getting all the roles and uh, the opinions <laughs> of our doctors. Uh, I know my listeners really appreciate the opportunity to hear different opinions and voices as well. So let's talk about treatment, 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 treatment. We've understood it a little bit more from my earlier guest, Dr. Chia, about the nature of it and what can be done in terms of prevention and the subtypes that are existing. But what is the, what is the standard traditional treatment approach for ovarian cancer, let's say, before we start talking about some of the advancements? Well, I think uh, uh, John has um, already mentioned about the symptoms and signs of ovarian cancer being rather difficult in the advanced stages. So we certainly like to be able to diagnose ovarian cancer earlier on in the stage one and two, where we primarily can do surgery first, first of all, to confirm the subtype of ovarian cancer and to stage properly before we recommend any uh, continuing uh, treatment to prevent the um, cancer from recurring. Mm. But unfortunately, we still see many 
many patients who present with bloating and the diagnosis therefore would be slightly more advanced at stage 3. Sometimes unfortunately even at stage 4 where it has spread outside the peritoneal cavity. In such a situation, um, surgery can still be recommended and surgery can still be done but um, some patients may end up having a prolonged and complicated surgery which can lead to prolonged and complicated stay in hospital. So in order to, to avoid that, um, the current thinking is uh, doing a biopsy first to determine the subtype of the ovarian cancer. And if need be, we can send it off, um, generally speaking, it's more of a standard of care right now, to send off for, for this testing called the uh, HRD, which would then determine if this cancer is related to uh, the genetic mutation that John has previously mentioned, the BRCA, the PALB2, which can then help us to formulate the treatment um, above and on top of chemotherapy. So the current thinking is that if we can find out the type of ovarian cancer prior to surgery, we can then shrink the cancer with chemotherapy, which is the standard of care, um, before we consider and recommend surgery. So that at the time that we do the surgery, patients can then um, undergo a potentially smaller surgery, uh, maybe even keyhole surgery, and with a shorter stay in hospital and less blood loss. So this has been shown to be equivalent. The only key here is that we try not to avoid surgery mm. totally by doing chemotherapy. Sometimes the chemotherapy can be so successful that our patients don't see any cancers be left behind and they say, you know, can I avoid no surgery? surgery? Please. Yes, uh, but we do have to because that would help us to, first of all, prevent the cancer from coming back and also to confirm that we have achieved a complete pathological response. So, so I think um, in terms of awareness, um, people are still thinking about surgery being primarily the first option. Mm. Um, so gradually, we're trying to persuade our patients to say, look, you know, before we do the surgery, we have got the technology to get a good biopsy, determine the type of ovarian cancer, and determine whether this is related to genetic mutation, and then formulate a plan for the next six months, including the surgery. It's just that the timing of the surgery may not be upfront followed by chemotherapy, which is the traditional uh, treatment. So it's chemotherapy, a few cycles, maybe two, maybe three, followed by surgery, followed by the rest of the chemotherapy, and then that considered as the first part of the treatment done. Thereafter, based on the type of ovarian cancer, we then determine if they need targeted therapy. Uh, some of the targeted therapy, just throw a few big names, uh, bevacizumab or Avastin or a PARP inhibitor for the genetic mutation or the HRD positive. Um, all these can continue to improve the uh, uh, progression-free or the relapse rate. That means to improve and to reduce the risk of relapse and eventually, hopefully, to translate to an overall survival benefit. So these are some of the, the, the newer treatments. But, but Daniel, to, to say that this is really new, that, that, that would be to tell a lie because we've been doing this for the last um, at least five to eight years. Mm. It's just that it takes a little bit of time to make that more mainstream and to make that more, uh, you know, where patients say, oh, I've heard of that, and, and makes them yeah. uh, more comfortable in accepting it. Because, you know, in, in a way, many patients are still thinking, if I have surgery first and if I do my surgery well, I don't need to have chemotherapy. Oh. So when they come and see us and the first thing we talk to them, is, oh, let's get a biopsy and let's get the chemotherapy. And they do get freaked out uh, with it. So I think by improving the, um, um, the knowledge base of our community to understand that we're giving this chemotherapy after the surgery anyway, but we're just bringing 
um, this, uh, you know, in a way, uh, the chemotherapy before the surgery so that we can provide our patients with a smaller surgery and a less complex stay in hospital. I think, put it that way, they will uh, eventually uh, understand why, why we're coming from, where we're coming from. So really, I mean, medically speaking and, you know, Evidence-wise, we've seen that the best bet, the best option for anyone is let's reduce the size as much as possible with these treatments, have that smaller surgery, and that generally can lead to better outcomes. But I can understand where the concern is for a lot of women. It's a sensitive area. This is You're the ovarian right. yes. region, and therefore I want to, you know, yeah. maybe preserve it as much as possible. Yeah. I don't want to have a hysterectomy yes. and things yes. like that. Yes. How do you address that? Well, well, so that's it, you see, because, you know, an individual may have not very many symptoms when they present with ovarian cancer. It's like suddenly I just feel bloated and then the doctor tells me, oh, I've got a serious condition and I need such an extensive surgery. So to be honest, um, for some of our patients, when we tell them that they can get chemotherapy first, it gives them some good good time to, to consider the surgery. So it buys us some time for them to come to terms with losing the ovaries and the uterus and the cervix, you know, to, to, to counsel them about, um, uh, you know, um, how well they can still have sex after that and how... Um, how they are not going to suddenly grow old just because of the, um, the the surgery to the ovaries. So in a way, getting chemotherapy up front really gives us this time to counsel them about the surgery. So, so far, I think Dr. Chow would agree with me is, is that we do see many of our patients um, in a way, reaping the benefits of getting the chemotherapy firsthand because um, there, there are a few advantages. Number one is that they see the cancer shrinking in front of their eyes. They see the tumor markers dropping from 1,000 to over 4,000, 5,000 down to a single digit. And then we go in and, and, and do the surgery and, and, you know, we don't see much cancer left behind. So meanwhile, we've given them approximately two months or so to come to terms with the actual surgery, counsel them about the postmenopausal symptoms, so on and so forth. So, so that's how we address it. Basically, we try, them, try to get them to see the good points from it. Um, because to be honest, once, once they've gone through it, they really turn back, um, they, they really think retrospectively and, 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 and realize that there is actually no negative points about it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the advancements we're seeing in terms of the treatment world for ovarian cancer on this World Ovarian Cancer Day special. What you just described to us, that approach of being more targeted, and mm-hmm. more more specific, rather than a carpet bombing of chemotherapy that may not apply to the subtype that you might have, we're trying to make sure that the treatment that we give is going to have the most efficacy for the kind of subtype of ovarian cancer that you might have, right? So it's been done for the last five, eight years, you said. Where yes, are we yes. right now? I, I, is that the yes. mainstay? Let, let, let me clarify that be, before um, our listeners think that there is a no-chemo option. I think chemotherapy works really well. Ovarian cancer is something that we class as chemosensitive, and it is a highly treatable condition. Um, but we do know is that while we give the same chemotherapy with the highest chance of response, and mind you, we're talking about an 80 to 90% chance of response in the ovarian cancer from the standard chemotherapy, that is available in in every hospital we know uh, on earth really it's mm. it's not something that 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 we have only in the first world countries even in the third world countries they 
know to treat ovarian cancer in a similar way. What, what happens is that um, sometimes while we give the same chemotherapy and we see an initial uh, response and a great response uh, from that, um, the disease begins to return two years or three years after that and it becomes retract uh, in, um, refractory to treatment. So what we're trying to find out with the different subtypes of ovarian cancer is to identify which of these cancers we can avoid the recurrences at the end of two to three years. So the initial chemosensitive part um, may be gone, but the residual tumor may be not so sensitive uh, to the initial chemotherapy and then subsequently to, to other chemotherapies. What we're trying to find is if there are targeted therapies that we can use to prevent these from recurring. So that, that um, in that sense, um, I'd like to introduce the concept of next generation sequencing, uh, which sounds really atas in that way, but it's just basically a genetic analysis of the tumor, first of all, to determine if this cancer is related to a genetic mutation, BRCA, PAL-B2, that, that, that John um, had mentioned previously, but also other targets, uh, PDL one to do with uh, checkpoint inhibitors and other different targets which we're still finding out year on year on year. So every year, with more next-generation sequencing that's done on the tumour, we begin to learn if any of these mutations are associated with either a better prognosis or a poorer prognosis so that we can identify who else needs additional treatment apart from chemotherapy. So, so basically, it's, it's very exciting times in the next five to ten years as more and more is discovered. So as the technology gets improved, we are then able to identify groups of patients that can kind of slot into a particular puzzle and then we can get them to have either extra or less treatment. And those groups, are yeah. they a minority of overall ovarian cancer cases, so to speak? Are these subtypes rare? Let's put it this way. You, you know, when we when we talk about education for our, our primary school kids, uh, we used to talk about the, uh, you know, the the one mole treatment. We 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 treat all all students the same. We we teach them all the same, and then you know we let them we let them flourish or we let them um, you, you know uh, fail by themselves. And 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 what we realize now with education is that some people need to be taught a different way. It's the same here. So it's not so much whether it's rare or not. We hope to subtype every single ovarian cancer. We hope to be able to come up with a tailored treatment for every ovarian cancer patient, just like we hope to come up with a unique educational system for every child that we have because everybody's got their own potential. So if we see an ovarian cancer patient, uh, what goes through uh, John's uh, mind and my, my, my mind would be, uh, is this a garden variety ovarian cancer? Uh, is this a genetic mutation related? Um, is this not? What is it due to? Is it due to inflammation? Is it uh, on a baseline with um, endometriosis? You know, what more do I need to have to do? So, so, so there are large categories that we can put them into. Um, they, ovarian cancer is not rare. Uh, therefore, the subtypes in itself is also not rare. Mm. What we know, unfortunately, there is that very rare type, which is uh, approximates maybe 1% to 5% called the mucinous type, for which most mutations, even if we find them, it doesn't mean that we can find a treatment that can uh, cure it. So a mucinous ovarian cancer is one that remains to be extremely uh, difficult to treat. Um, and in that sense, fortunately, it is rare. But sometimes when we see a tumor that doesn't present with any targets, it's also very rare. So 
majority of the ovarian cancer has a target, and that's good news. So when our patients hear that, oh, there's a target, they, they feel, oh, no, that means it's more mutated or is it less mutated. When there is a target that we can target, it's actually a good thing. Where are we in terms of advancements, in terms of detecting this potentially earlier on? And Because like you said, when people are relying and waiting for signs like the bloatedness and things like that, it yeah. might be a little bit further along, right? Yes, yes. So one thing that I didn't manage to mention just now is that there are many different uh, precursors for ovarian cancer, genetic being one of them. And the other big thing is called endometriosis, which is the lining of the womb that occurs outside the lining of the womb, meaning that we find this endometrial lining lying somewhere either in the muscle of the, the uterus or outside in the peritoneum. We call that endometriosis. Ladies with such a condition would complain of money very painful menses. They sometimes even cough up blood. They've got chest pain, depending on where the endometrial tissue actually ends up. So this is a genetic condition. And, and recently, the French researchers are developing a molecular testing for endometriosis diagnosis and subtyping. Hopefully, in the future, we can find ladies with such symptoms and perform oophorectomy to prevent such inflammation from developing into ovarian cancer. And the type of endometriosis-related ovarian cancer is the clear cell type and the endometriotic type, which tends to be rather difficult to treat if they are found late stage. So we're really moving into trying to diagnose uh, and prevent ovarian cancer before it actually happens. And we're hopeful that in the next 10 years, we'll be able to identify who are the ladies whom at age of 40, 45, or even earlier than that we can perform um, oophorectomy mm. uh, in order to prevent the ovarian cancer totally. My gosh, that's yeah. amazing that we could potentially one day do that yeah. in our lifetime, uh, even to have that ability. So, but but bearing in mind that, let's let's end on this note. At this point in time, let's end on prevention, 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 and early detection. So that might lie ahead. What what is the situation now? Who might be most at risk and what should bring you into the doctor's office to get checked out for something like ovarian cancer? Yes, so so um, the other thing that we didn't mention just now is that actually in Singapore, our ladies are relatively smaller in size. They have a smaller waistline. So we, we do enjoy a slightly earlier detection of our ovarian cancer. Uh, KK Women's Children's Hospital did a, um, a little uh, research several years ago and discovered that we actually find our ovarian cancers at stage 1, stage 2 at mm. a far greater percentage as compared to the Western world in that sense, purely because our ladies are small in size. So when, when they have a little bit of bloating, we didn't need to educate our GP. So, so essentially, uh, and also m many of our, our, our ladies have a regular gynae that they go to to do their pap smears and their ultrasounds. So any ladies who are nearing postmenopausal or uh, nearing menopause who has an ovarian cyst that needs to be checked out. Um, and any ladies with a raised CA125 tumor marker who is postmenopausal, that also needs to be checked out. So many people go for their general checkup. If they are beyond 50 years old and postmenopausal and one of the tumor markers are raised, then that should raise an eyebrow, two eyebrows, and immediately drive them to the doctors. But for a premenopausal young lady who's still ovulating, a higher CA125 is basically normal. So again, we need to, to increase uh, the knowledge base for that in our community. Um, and of course, if I do know that I 
have a very strong family history of breast cancer, aka the Angelina Jolie gene, then I, I do not wait, want to wait until I have symptoms. I go to the doctor and see if there is any way that we could uh, uh, maybe nearing menopause, consider removing the fallopian tubes first, then mm. followed by the ovaries to prevent the ovarian cancer. Dr. C, this has been absolutely invaluable. Thank you so much for your time today, helping us recognize World Ovarian Cancer Day, which is recognized around the world on May 8th every year. Dr. C. Hui T joining us, Senior Consultant Medical Oncologist out of Parkway Cancer Center, Singapore. Before making any decisions based on the information in our program, please consult a medical professional.